are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinas. Missed you all last week and wish you could have all been with me. It would have been a wonderful experience if everybody could have been there and uh, maybe sometime in the future. Uh, we could do that. But uh, tonight we are picking up on page four, or 395. Uh, at the very top of the page, paragraph 48. And if you remember, we've been talking about the distinctive marks of the humble man. And uh, we are considering now some little small stories of uh, Abba Sissos and his engagement of some of the other monks. And again, it's through these stories where I think our vision of humility begins to broaden out a little bit, not so tightly defined. And uh, that becomes, I think, very clear in the stories here tonight. So again, we are on page 395 for those who just joined us and paragraph 48. Another brother asked him, Abba, I perceive that the remembrance of God remains with me. It is not important that your mind is with God, replied the elder. What is important is that you see yourself as being below all other creatures. This is why physical labor leads to humility. And so one can still have a sense of pride. Uh, in the spiritual life and certain spiritual states, uh, even as the one described by this monk, that he finds himself always having his mind turned toward God. And as a subtle reminder, the abbot tells him here that what's most important is, is not that, but making one less than other, all other creatures. And this is where physical labor, he says, come in, comes in. When you make yourself the servant of others, uh, there's a humbling that takes place there. Uh, and one imitates Christ. I came not to, to be served, but to serve. And so there's uh, a refined kind of humility when it's not just in the mind or this internal experience, but when it's acted upon in, in relationship to the other. And, uh, and so when we make ourselves the servants of others is when uh, humility is, is brought to a kind of perfection. And I think we see this in the, the Father's description of all, all the virtues, that uh, they all have to be perfected by the grace of God over the course of time, that uh, even as we grow 
in virtue and overcome the opposite of them, the vices, that uh, we are still called to open ourselves up to the action of God's grace and allow him to lead us into a greater perfection. And sometimes in ways that we might not expect, uh, where we are called to serve others and to humble ourselves before them, uh, no matter who they are or uh, within our community or who we seem, uh, happen to encounter on a given day, that we don't want to pass those moments up in attending to others and their needs. And, uh, and so it's, it's wise counsel. Abba Sissos said to a brother, how are you doing? He says, I, he said, I waste my days, father, answered the brother. If I were to waste a single day, said the elder, I would be grateful. That is to say, if I were to pass a single day without, without adding to my sins, I would be grateful. And so, you know, trying to assure this young man uh, that uh, there is a positive way of wasting time in the sense of not giving ourselves over, not just to idle things, uh, but certainly to sinful things. And so, uh, oh, that I would waste time in this sense, that uh, I, I would not be attentive to the things of this world that would pull me away from God. Three elders once visited Abba Sissos after having heard of him. The first of them said to him, Father, how can I be saved from the gnashing of teeth and the unsleeping worm? Abbasissos did not give him an answer. The second asked, Father, how can I be saved from the gnashing of teeth and the unsleeping worm? Abbasissos did not reply to him either. The third one said, Father, what am I to do for my fear of the recollection of the outer darkness? I cannot even breathe. The elder then said to them, I do not think about any of these things, but I hope that God, compassionate as he is, will have mercy on me. On hearing this reply, the elders were upset and got up to leave. But Abba Sissos, since he did not want to let them go away in distress, said to them, you are blessed, brothers. Truly, I envy you, for if your minds are always dominated by such thoughts, it is impossible for you to sin. But what am I to do, hard-hearted as I am? For I have not been granted to know even whether there is a punishment from heaven. Because of this, I sin every hour. When the elders heard these words of Abba Sissos, they repented of their previous thoughts and said, just as we have heard, so too we have seen. And so there can be a kind of sorrow that gives rise to a focus upon the self and a kind of unholy fear and anxiety to the point where the one monk says, uh, because of these thoughts, I cannot even breathe. And uh, Abba Sissos seeks to respond to it uh, by saying, you know, I don't turn my mind to these thoughts at all, but rather to hope in God. And they seem almost unsatisfied by the, by the answer because it does not confirm them in this kind of fear that they had. And so 
he, in order to lift them out of this distress that they're experiencing, he humbles himself before them and saying that, oh, brothers, you're, you're in a better position than I am, that because your thoughts are dominated by these things, you are preserved from falling into the sins that I fall into every day. And when they encounter his humility, immediately they are, are lifted out of the, this kind of self-focus and they see the true nature of humility here that even in the face of one's own, one's poverty that what stands before uh, one who's tr truly humble is hope hope in god and in his promises that uh sometimes our pride leads us uh, to believe that our sins are greater than the mercy of god and so to lose hope in his his promise to be compassionate. And Abbasissa certainly had reached that level uh, of trust in the Lord. Uh, but these men, while, while they had uh, a deep sorrow for their sin, it had also led them to lose, lose hope in the Lord and to have an over-focus upon the self. So it's an important, uh, I think, teaching in the spiritual life, you know, we, we can direct our focus out on onto others, you know, the log in the eye. So we see logs everywhere kind of thing. And but we, we can our own sin can loom so large in our eyes that it seems greater than the mercy of God. And it can drive us to this kind of anxiety, this unholy anxiety, because we lose sight of God. And in, in that sense, it, it makes it even worse than the sins, uh, because uh, when we are able to hold on to that promise, uh, then we're able to repent, whereas I think they had become fixated upon their weakness. And so it's interesting, I think, when we, we give the fathers a closer look, as we do in reading the entire corpus of their, their writings, you begin to see uh, this subtle uh, way that they have of seeing both how sin affects us, but also the, the subtlety of certain virtues and how we need to hold on to certain aspects of them so that we aren't drawn into uh, the very thing that it's meant to lift us out of. And this is true here in this story. So this is the three paragraphs. Any thoughts or comments so far? Okay. Paragraph number 51. Abba Sissos used to say that the way that leads to humility is abstinence, unceasing prayer to God, and the struggle to be lower than every man. And so the, the last of these we've considered, to struggle to be lower than every man, to make oneself the servant of all, uh, to make oneself obedient and to serve each other in the spirit of obedience. But the first two, he adds, abstinence, that again, we humble ourselves in body. We uh, do not eat to satiety. We also eat those things that aren't overly rich, where our focus, again, is drawn back on the self and the satisfying of the palate. And this is always a hard, hard thing to get away from. We all have our favorite foods 
you know, whether it's dairy or uh, chocolate or something along those lines. And, uh, but abstaining from these things, uh, especially during the, the fast periods, we, we can see we can see very clearly, I think, how how much we long for that kind of satisfaction, more so than our longing for the sweetness of prayer. And uh, and so this abstinence can humble us in body in the sense of uh, lessening our appetites, but also reveal to us how we hold the things, even the things that we eat more sweet than prayer. And then finally, unceasing prayer to God, that to take the focus off of the self altogether and to lose oneself in the desire for God and the wonder of his love. And it was it was a great thing to be immersed again uh, in the retreat this past week in the writings of Isaac the Syrian, uh, because he uses this language of wonder uh repeatedly throughout his homilies of being caught up in the beauty of that love uh to the point that that uh you know one loses fear but also loses the capacity to judge others when we are able to see the wonder of god's love and compassion what he's done for us then it softens the heart and we lose that capacity to look upon others with a harsh eye. Number 52. He also said, it is written in the Old Testament that idols have a mouth, but will not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. Ears they have they, but they do not hear. This is how a monk should also be. Just as idols are an abomination, so also should he think that he is an abomination. So, you know, we are to imitate the idols in not giving free reign to our speech or our senses, but to to guard to guard them so much so that we become uh, like the the idols in some sense. But uh, uh, we sh should also see ourselves as idols in the sense of the kind of false worship that is given to them. We all also give to ourselves. And so see the abomination that we, we often become, again, in, in simple ways. Uh, I think I mentioned here Cassian saying that many of the fathers would see the turning of one's thoughts away from God as adultery or idolatry that we are taking our eyes off of the beloved and turning our, our thoughts towards something else uh, to the point of losing sight of he who created these things and he who created us and uh, it's amazing on a day-to-day -day basis or even for one hour if we would reflect upon it, how our minds can skip away from God. Uh, and we will get caught up in something that causes us anxiety or something that is a frustration for us and ruminate on it, where it captivates or takes hold of our heart uh, in the way that love for God should. 
And uh, and so, you know, this isn't meant to make us scrupulous. I think it's meant, though, to uh, open our eyes uh, to all the ways that we can turn away from the Lord and uh, that we are often aren't aware of and that our being Christian is not simply being good people again or rising to the heights of natural virtue, but really having eyes only for God and seeking to do his will, seeking to imitate Christ in this regard, that our food would be to do the will of the Father and that our eyes would be directed to fulfilling that reality at all times. And I think often we would see that and maybe it's because we know something of the slavery to sin that we don't know the freedom of living in true obedience and, and love for God, that uh, seeking his will at every moment and directing our thoughts to him leads a person to have a kind of freedom from anxiety about life. Uh, and the unknown and the unexpected. And those things plague us. We, we know that on a day-to-day -day basis, how quickly our mood can shift when we feel the, the weight and the burden of certain things hit us. And But if we are focused upon God and living for him, it elevates us. Uh, not in the sense that we become blind to those realities, but we lose the the need to control them or to, again, approach them in a calculating way. That I need to present this in such a way that it will uh, be responded to well, or that the, the circumstances that I would like to see develop would emerge. Rather, we should be driven by what our heart is telling us and our conscience is telling us and what love is telling us, where it's directing us. And when we're able to do that, there again, there's a kind of deep freedom. Because more often than not, there are certain days that just don't go well. You, know, you wake up feeling crappy. I'm sorry for the language, terrible. You just wake up and the body's not working right, right from the beginning of the day. Like, you know, I have these two dogs, as you know, and sometimes they're right on top of me. And I was twisted for half of the night. And so for the first half of the day, I was like limping because my hip was felt like it was out of the socket. <laughs> and some days you, you, there's, you know, you know, there are worse things, of course, you know, the, the first world problems. But uh, there are things like that that can distract us. And we have to consciously uh, with this unceasing prayer and be drawing ourselves back to the Lord, even as we are feeling those things. So again, you know, we're not Stoics, but I think, you know, the real miracle, it's been said, is that the, the suffering uh, of Christ can make our suffering salutary. That, you know, the things that we bear on a day-to-day -day basis can become redemptive in and through Christ because he's present in them. And if our eyes uh, are, and the eyes of our hearts are purified, we come to see that truth more and more clearly.
that question often comes up, you know, what, why, you know, why do people have to suffer? Why do I have to hear this every day, the suffering of these saints and all the things they go through? Somebody, in fact, asked me at this about just every single day. And uh, this is, uh, and this is part of the reason that, that suffering has been assumed. You know, that which has not been assumed has not been redeemed. And so Christ, in assuming our, our humanity, assumes it all in order that all things about our experience as human beings now lived in, in him can be redemptive, including the things that are that bring great suffering to us, or even the sufferings of, of the great martyrs. It's not to glorify suffering. It's to say that it does not have the last word. In fact, it's it's been transformed, and uh, and you know I think this is where we begin to understand Paul a little bit better, where he says, "Death, where where's where's the where's thou thy sting?" You know that even in the worst of things for us, that it has lost its sting because Christ has assumed it and overcome it. Okay. Number 53, a monk asked Abba Kronios, Father, in what way does a man arrive at humility? Through fear of God, replied the elder. And how does he arrive at the fear of God? The brother asked a second time. In my opinion, answered the elder again, it is by withdrawing oneself from everything, giving himself over to physical labor, and as far as he is able, thinking about the departure of the soul from the body and about the judgment of God. And so fear of God, you know, the beginning of wisdom, where we begin to see uh, things with kind of clarity, the things that pull us away from purity of heart, from the life of our life in Christ, that the, the beginning of that path starts for us when we withdraw from the things of this world in order to obtain a certain freedom in the face of them, that we let go of our attachment to the things of the world. We give ourselves over to physical labor. So again, becoming the servants of others, but uh, humbling the, the body, and then thinking of one's departure and judgment, that we again recognize the brevity of our life, uh, but also that our our actions, our decisions, our choices, while free, are also freighted with destiny, that they all have meaning. And so that we don't take the things that uh, take place in our life lightly. We, we see them for what they are. This is part of humility, truthful living, living in the truth. And uh, I think one of our tendencies is to make light of things or to take nothing serious. And that that is not humility. You know, I think it's a kind of profound lack of humility, really, when we have this in, uh, inability to see the truth. So nothing matters and we sort of make a joke about everything. You know, that's that's not humility of heart. Humility of heart is able to see the full truth. And uh, Mary is 
a good example of this in humility and love. She was able to perceive, uh, uh, you know, all, all that was taking place in Christ's life, the depth of that mystery, but also to see uh, deep into the passion, so much so that a sort of sorrow pierces through her heart as well. We talked a little about this a little bit before that love is not blind. You know, that's you know something that we like to tell us because usually, you know, certain kinds of love make us turn away from the truth or not see it. Uh, but in, in reality, it should allow us to see the truth with a perfect clarity. Louise writes, could you talk about the fear of God versus being in love with God? The, the one leads to the other. I think the fear of God leads to the struggle. And I, I can't remember who I read this in today. It may have been in the Philoclea that f the fear of God leads us then to conversion of life, to repentance, to the struggle with the passions. And when we struggle with the passions and order the appetites, we develop uh, a, a greater clarity, certainly about ourselves, but also about the depth of the love of God. And so this is why scripture says fear is the, the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of it. So, but it allows us to, uh, to see the horror of sin, if you will, the darkness of it, and uh, as opposed to the light and the love of God. And this redirects us towards him. It allows for repentance to emerge. And once repentance emerges, then light is given. Uh, the capacity for discernment comes with purity of heart. And so we are able to see the things of God with a greater clarity. And that would include his love. So the goal for us would be to pass from that kind of fear and to be driven by love and we've over time we've talked about this that fear i'm sorry that love is the the stronger motivator it's what makes us run with a kind of swiftness i've always loved the passage uh, about the resurrection where peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb and peter uh is still kind of running with a heavy tread you know, he, he knows the weight and the burden of his denial, of his betrayal. And so while still running to the tomb, uh, is outrun by the beloved disciple who runs swiftly as, as a friend when called. And he enters into the tomb and sees and believes, we are told. He sees the folded cloths. And so... Love outstrips fear and uh, and is able to, to run with a, a greater swiftness to the Lord. Okay. It's always a hard thing, you know, because we have these passages within Scripture that certainly do speak of this to us and are meant to pierce the heart. And uh, especially when it has been hardened, uh, by our own sin to uh, awaken us to repentance and and when it's been hardened by pride in particular we see Christ's uh, harshest words were directed to the scribes and the pharisees because 
you know, of this uh, kind of self-satisfied religiosity that they had that prevented them from seeing their own poverty. Whereas, you know, the harlots and the tax collectors, you know, I think were perfectly aware of the things that they had struggled with throughout the course of their life. And so we're able to see the truth more clearly to the point that Christ says, you know, that they're the ones that are entering into the kingdom first before you. Not, not, you know, not to their pleasure, not to the pleasure of his listeners, of course. Okay, number 54. On one occasion, Abba Macarius was returning from the marsh to his cell and was carrying palm leaves. The devil met him on the road with a scythe. He tried to strike him, but was unable to do so. And then he said to him, Great spiritual power emanates from you, Mercarius, and this is why I cannot do anything against you. For see, whatever you do, that I do also. You fast, and so do I. You do not sleep, and I never sleep at all. There is only one respect in which you beat me. What is this, Abba, Mercarius asked him. Your humility, the devil answered, and this is why I cannot do anything against you. And uh, we find similar sayings, you know, certainly in the other fathers. And uh, Anthony the Great, not from the devils, but uh, uh, from God himself, when looking out and seeing all the demons, you know, asked the question, you know, you know how, who can be saved or what could save us from this? And the voice he hears is humility in, in a similar fashion that it's only our reliance upon God that gives us strength. And so, uh, you know, the evil one is not going to be impressed by our asceticism. So this is why it can't be an end in itself, that we take it up out of love in order to direct our minds and our hearts and our desires toward God. But if our asceticism fails to do that, it's not worth much because if if it becomes simply a, uh, something that fills us with pride, then the evil one is going to be, you know, someone who's far more uh, given over to these things, never eats, never sleeps. And so is always going to have the advantage. Abba Hyperachias said, Humility is a tree of life that rises up to the height of heaven. The image of the tree of life that rises up to the height of heaven is interesting. I think the imagery is meant to direct us to the cross itself. You know, that this is uh, what speaks to us of humility uh, most fully. And when we keep our, not only our eyes fixed to it, but ourselves fixed to it when we die to self and we die to sin is where we are then lifted up and exalted it truly does become the tree of life for us number 56 an elder said he who has humility humbles the demons he who does not have humility is a plaything of the demons. So 
you know, it's the one means that the evil one, the demons are stripped of their power and can be tossed aside or overcome and often makes them leave uh, and give up in their attempt to, to overcome an individual. Uh, but when the moment we give ourselves over to pride is where we become tossed about like a, a ship on the waves, that we become their playthings, so that, that they can move us around so so easily. Again, you know, by the, the shifting of our emotions, you know, a mere word from a, another, something not going our way, you know, it becomes very easy at that point. Or the, the mere provocation of a particular thought uh, that's, that uh, is a temptation to us. It becomes something easy to draw us off of the path that leads to Christ. Any comments on any of these little sayings? Okay. Number 57. The same elder said, do not be humble only in speech, but also be humble of mind. For without humility, it is impossible to be exalted in godly works. So, you know, one can feign humility or one can use humble language, uh, but it's really only in the, in the mind, you know, where we've embraced it, where it is the truth, that it shapes how we see the world and others and ourselves, that uh, we can possibly fulfill the works of God. And uh, again, you know, we're constantly struggling to bring this mind into the heart to make what it is that we believe something that is real and concrete. And real and concrete in different ways, in action, but uh, also in what it is that guides our action our mind so brother we, david yes mm -hmm. can you explain um how you bring your mind into your heart well i think it's through when we look at the fathers is through this constancy of prayer and the remembrance of god and moving from the multiplicity of thought to simplicity of thought we've talked as you you probably remember about the the numerous thoughts that we have on a given day and how that can scatter us and scatter our minds. And so the ideal for us uh, is to move to the heart, which is the deepest part of the, of the human person in the writings of the fathers, uh, the deepest regions of our religiosity, of our faith, and of our identity, conscious and unconscious. And so this movement, this constancy of prayer allows us to move from that multiplicity of thought to simplicity, to Christ. And this allows the mind to descend into the heart where we have one focus and one focus alone, and that is Christ. And so the Jesus prayer and the non-discursive prayer that they embrace uh, is not simply to achieve a kind of peace of mind, 
but rather is to lead to deeper intimacy and to focus our desire and our love upon Christ, to keep ourselves from becoming dissipated and allow ourselves to become more and more focused upon who it is that we love and who loves us. And so this is no easy uh, thing to achieve, requires great grace, but again, this constancy of prayer that we don't allow the mind and mind to wander throughout the course of the day. And I think we sort of take that for granted, that that's sort of how the mind works. We daydream and, you know, we flit from here to there until we try to maintain our focus upon God, even for a short period of time. And we begin to see that uh, how fragmented our minds can be and the things that contribute to that fra fragmenting and uh, and how difficult it is then to uh, find healing in Christ from those things and then to be focused upon him completely. Uh, so often, you know, the writings of the fathers is called the signs of the fathers or the signs of sciences that the Eastern fathers speak more of healing uh, than they do of speaking of, about sin in, term, in a legalistic or moralistic fashion, that they see the poverty and the wounds that it causes. And so the fathers, you know, who have a kind of joy and speak of this healing out of having been healed and uh, that they then presented to us. And I read something today that was really interesting from Herothios Vlachos, uh, a little warning about how we read the, the fathers. And uh, just now that you brought this up, I just want to share it very quickly. I have it, I have it right at hand. And... Uh, He says, we must see the patristic writings and the books of the New Testament as therapeutic texts that heal people, but also as the fruit of healing, and not regard them as an opportunity to make an impression by exploiting the latest fashionable trend. Our transformation within the church will make us Christian in both faith and life. It will heal us so that we can offer true worship to God. So we're not just to look back at the fathers. That's not the idea, nor uh, look to the fathers as to the future, but in the present moment as a source of healing. And that their writings arise out of the healing that they experienced. And we're really only going to understand them fully as we apply them to ourselves and begin to experience that healing in our own life from sin. And so, and one of the, the ways that we are healed is this common saying of moving the mind to the heart, not just to approach the spiritual life or the life of prayer notionally in thought, but allow that to descend again into the deepest and fullest regions of who we are to, uh, as human beings and to take root there so that we're praying, not just with our, our minds, but with our whole being, that we become prayer 
And that would be the, the end or the fruit of this movement of the mind to the heart. Uh, Rachel writes, oh wait, I think I missed a couple here. Could we say from Louise that someone under uh, a spell can be blinded by the spell of the demon so to have pride regarding how one is great and serving the demon without realizing it blinded by the spell of the demon so to have pride regarding yeah yes i think so that we can be so blinded by the evil one that uh that we don't even realize that we are serving him rather than god and uh there, there is a little story. It's interesting that you bring that up. It comes up a little bit later uh, where there is a priest, a pagan priest, who uh, catches a glimpse of this when a demon is defeated and comes back and then acknowledging his defeat. And then uh, it's then that the pagan priest is converted. But sort of what you describe here is coming up in one of the little stories. Rachel writes, yes, yes, yes. The opposite always reminded me of trading baseball cards in childhood. <laughs> Which part are you speaking about, Rachel? Can you, you could take yourself off mute if you want. Let's see if she'll do it. Maybe the quoting of the father instead of diving, oh, of the fathers instead of diving deeply. That's right. We can be trading card trade like trading cards we're trading quotes of of the fathers and uh that's right so not to become dilettantes you know that we fill our minds with all these wonderful sayings and teachings without embodying them and uh with with the monks on over the weekend we were talking about how one one of the elders who read Isaac the Syrian would not allow himself to turn a page until he had interiorized what Isaac had written. And you think about how slow we read. Uh, you can imagine how that would slow us down even more if we only were willing to turn the page when we had fully embraced what had, had been written. Uh, but, you know, it goes a long way to show us that, you know, we're not just reading for the sake of reading or for, for information but for tr true transformation. Okay. Uh, number 58. To a great anchorite who said, why do you make war on me, Satan? Satan replied, it is you with your humility who war mightily against me. And this is interesting because we are not warred against unless we engage in warfare. You know, if we're giving ourselves over to everything, you know, Satan is, he's, again, we're going to be his plaything and, uh, or we're not going to feel as though we are being afflicted in any way. But when we are engaging in the spiritual battle and when we are, uh, seeking to live humble lives that's when he's going to attack us most fiercely and so we shouldn't be surprised that the spiritual life becomes even more difficult as we step into it 
And who better to understand this than an anchorite? You know, he goes into the, into deeper solitude, and in that deeper solitude, he's going to be afflicted all the more uh, because uh, it's in that solitude that the demons are going to seek to bring him down because, again, he's alone. He's not living the common life. And so one enters into this life uh, to, to struggle all the more. For some reason, spiritual warfare and the terminology uh, isn't in favor or hadn't been in favor for a long period of time. And maybe it just sounds too aggressive to, to people. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, you know, at one point I had a group on Lorenzo Scopoli's book thinking, no, because we, you know, we weren't getting very many men at the group. Uh, for a period of time so i thought we'll do this book called spiritual combat and uh, you know thinking that you know it might speak to that perhaps more aggressive <laughs> side and uh it didn't work but uh nonetheless i think we we often gravitate away from it because it doesn't sound you know very peaceful to us and uh to think of our uh, uh, living a life in battle or when we're engaging a relentless enemy. And so I think there can be something that resists that kind of language that makes us want to move away from it. Whereas we find the father's drawing us back to it over and over again. You know, no one likes to go up against a plucky fighter, prepare yourself for, for warfare, because this is exactly what, what you're going to face. The elders used to say, humility is a crown for the monk. And so for uh, the monk or for the follower of Christ, not just the monk, the, the crown that uh, we would want to don is that crown of humility. You know, Christ is crowned with a crown of thorns. He's not honored by the world, but rejected by the world. And we should not expect to wear any other kind of thing or to be honored in any other kind of way than he was. Uh, Rod wrote, oh, I love that book. Can you try again, Father? Uh, yeah, you know, I, th I thought it was a magnificent work, too. And so did even the Eastern Fathers, The Spiritual Combat by Lorenzo Scopoli. And they, it's renamed Unseen Warfare. St. Theophan the Recluse, uh, I think, added a lot of the Eastern Fathers into it and reshaped the work a, a little bit. But in and of itself, it's a spiritual classic. And whenever something arises out of deep suffering, uh, there's always something especially powerful about it. Lorenzo Scopoli was a theatine uh, in the 16th century so a member of this religious community that existed at the time. And he was falsely accused uh, by a woman of, you know, I don't know if it was having seduced her or even having raped her. And so he was imprisoned for a period of time by his community. He was stripped of his priesthood and yet remained a part of the, the community and lived in, in obedience and eventually the woman came forward and acknowledged that she had she had lied 
And so like six months before his death, he was reinstated, you know, to his full position within the community. But it was during this uh, period where he had been stripped of everything that he wrote this book, uh, Spiritual Combat. So its insights and its beauty are quite, quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, I've mentioned here Pope Shenouda a number of times, his work, The Life of Repentance and Purity. And the same thing for him. He was exiled by Anwar Sadat for 40 months and uh, because Sadat didn't like anybody who disagreed with his political policies. And, uh, and so he uh, was sort of pushed into exile for this period of time. It was during that time that he wrote his most beautiful writing on on these things and again i think that's why they have the the depth of the beauty that they do let's see here there louise writes saint john says do not love the world or anything in the world saint james seems to take a step further when he writes anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of god saint john also says we know that we are from god and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one Right. When the fathers use the word world, they typically mean all, all of that which has been uh, come under the grip of sin or dominated by the pa passions, that which is controlled by the passions. And so, you know, anyone who, you know, uh, loves sin is, you know, and thinks that he serves God is a, a liar or hates his brother is a liar. Uh, I think James tells us as well. And, uh, and so again, this is one of those things that we take lightly You know, we glorify so many of the things in this world that are in the grip of the passions or draw people in to the passions we celebrate it, you know, we celebrate the figures that embody it, and uh, and we consume what is put forward before us, even as Christian men and women, rather than avoiding it like the plague. And uh, this is where I think having saints that embody the gospel in our day becomes most important. You know, words seem to uh, be drowned out. It's only the living example of those who have really turned to God in a radical way. I think this speak to to people's hearts, even from afar. And with the monks this week, we talked a little bit about that. That you know, this life of solitude, you know, in the mountains uh, of where their monastery is located, it might be easy for them to think that this has no impact often that's the temptation but it can be the source of strength for the church and the abbot was telling me that his bishop loves the monastic life loves the monks and knows that it brings strength to the eparchy and has four monk has created four monasteries and has even been asked another you know by his counselors another one why you already have you know, three, why, why have a fourth? And because he says, you know, it's the strength, they're the strength, spiritual strength of our eparchy. And it's where the people can go to be nourished spiritually. 
And I, I, I think they're nourished spiritually, not only by going to the monastery, I think it's by having the monasteries uh, in their midst, you know, that, you know, those who are engaged in the spiritual warfare, strengthen the body as a whole. And, uh, and the bishop goes there regularly, he, they said it was actually sort of unnerving, because he said, he called up and said, I'm coming. And, and they said, when? And he said, like, two hours. And so they, you know, start scrambling around, never having had that happen before. And, uh, and then they asked, how long is he saying? How long are you staying? You know, thinking maybe a day or so. And he said, well, a week, maybe two weeks, maybe longer. He said, I'm a monk too. You know, this is, this is my, you know, my monastery. And so it's a beautiful thing to hear uh that you know that their shepherd would be nourishing himself in this way regularly okay let's see number 60 number 60 an elder was once asked when does the soul acquire humility he answered when it thinks about its own vices so mourning over one's sin, one's own sin, being blind to the sins of others and struggling with one's own passions rather than seeking to uproot them in others. Again, it's, you know, mourning takes deep root when there is a constancy in our repentance and our turning toward, toward God at every moment. 61. An elder said, just as the earth never falls down, neither does the man who humbles himself. So he who humbles himself is exalted. The one who's humble before God is always going to be within the hands of God and always going to be lifted up by him. So even as we fall in our poverty, in our sin, the humble heart is always going to be one who is rescued and embraced by the Lord, you know, that has, again, does not hold on to the illusion of one's strength, uh, but is going to find their strength, going to find their joy in the Lord, uh, because they live constantly in hope of him. And we'll just do one, one more paragraph here, number 62. Once upon a time, there were two brothers in the flesh who lived in the same place. The devil tempt, attempted to separate the one from the other. One day when the younger was lighting a lamp, a demon set, set to work and turned over the lampstand, which knocked the lamp down. So the older brother beat him in anger. Instead of getting angry, the younger brother made a prostration and said to him, Forgive me, my brother, I will light it again. With such humility from the younger brother, the power of the Lord immediately came forth and destroyed all the demon's power. He went to his chief, who was residing in a pagan temple, and reported the event to him. A pagan priest heard the demon recounting this, and recognizing his heir, he was baptized and became a monk. 
from the beginning of his monastic life, he maintained humility, saying, humility destroys all the power of the enemy. As I myself heard from the devil, who stated, when I provoke some disturbance among monastics, and one of them backs down and makes a prostration in order to seek forgiveness, all my power is wiped out immediately. And so, Louise, this is the story I had in mind earlier, that, you know, this meekness and gentleness of heart, I don't know if it exactly... Uh, addresses your question but here was a pagan priest you know who wor worshipped an idol but he saw uh what humility brings to light here that it, it is the weakness of the demon and so when he sees the one come back and say that he was overcome by the monastic who prostrated himself before his brother even though he struck him unjustly then the, the pagan priest has a great moment of conversion and even to the point of becoming a monk himself. That, uh, you know, the tr trickery of the, uh, of the evil one is, uh, un, you know, it's seen for what it is in those moments. It's brought into the fullness of the light. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing of prostrating oneself or backing down or seeking forgiveness, you know, we have a hard time with this, you know, kind of meek, meekness of spirit where we don't give way to anger. And it's actually a great strength, I think, not to give way to such something so powerful. And yet we often will treat it as a weakness of character. And yet we, we see the power here that it has to overcome the demons themselves. And we know how nasty brothers can beat each other, beating up each other all the time. <laughs> and how unusual is that, that a brother would back down from a brother, uh, a natural brother at that. And, uh, so, uh, so a lot to meditate upon again here this week and uh and to bear with it i know a lot of it is repetitive but again i think we are revolving around like this jewel this gem and seeing it in all of its facets and and all of its brilliance uh by uh these stories and these sayings of the fathers so allow yourself when you can to go back over them and meditate on them when you can. Okay. So great to see you all. Um, sorry about last week. And thank you for all your prayers. It was the best retreat uh, I've had ever. And, uh, and, and I was even, you know, I was working, I was given it and I was working, but it was just, I received so, so many grades. I think I received more than they did to be honest with you from the experience. So thank you for all of your prayers. Uh, and uh, we'll see you this Wednesday for St. John Climacus in the light of divine ascent. And then sadly next week, I have another retreat to do, but that'll be the last for a long time. Uh, and so, uh, but so keep on praying there. So Wednesday for the, the ladder of divine ascent. Okay.
And so we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May our God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.